spinning back to the open side. Karim Bete, nothing good here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete, back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando, and tonight is a special episode looking at the ins and outs of the financial situation Australian rugby finds itself in with this golden decade of rugby fast approaching. Now, you all know my weaknesses and my strengths, and numbers are not one of those strengths. So to help me crunch those numbers and translate the tables, I have with me David Bond. David, how are you tonight, mate? Good day, Ando. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yourself? I am very excited because I have someone that's far more knowledgeable than me to help understand the stuff we're going to be going through. So I love I love learning and I love having um, somebody actually knowing what they're talking about. So uh, for people who are listening or watching and may not know you and may not know why they should listen to you talk about numbers and stuff, why, why should they? Yeah, no, no, good question. And first of all, just happy to have you be on here for a chat and, and have a yarn about all things money and rugby. Um by way of background, I did a PhD in accounting um, some many moons ago. Um, so from there, have been teaching accounting for close to 20 years now um, within within the university sector. Um, so that's been a bit of fun. So hopefully I should have some sense of what I'm doing here. Um, also played for 16, 16 odd years or so with Northern Suburbs in Sydney. Um, and just by way of disclosure, I'm also on the board of the Sydney Rugby Union. Um, but any commentary around what's going on with PE and, and, and whatnot is purely based on what's out in the public domain. Because um, yeah. I actually don't know an awful lot about that from, from the inner workings because I'm nowhere near the level of, of the discussions there. Um, but yeah, I just thought over the, over the years of the research that I've been doing that, you know, enjoy accounting, enjoy, you know, research is part of what I do as well within um, being an academic enjoy rugby and I figured I'd find a way to sort of merge those two things together. So I've been doing a little bit of work around looking at rugby, um, looking at RA's finances over the last sort of 30, 40 years. And, you know, from that, been able to get to opportunities to chat to people like yourself. Very exciting, mate. Now, you also have a YouTube channel where you have done some of these types of conversations or videos before. Do you want to quickly plug that and where people can maybe search up some information on previous uh, rugby finance chats that you've done? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so the channel is Dr. Dave Bond. So D-R-D-A-V-E-B-O-N-D. Um, so it's at YouTube. Um, there's a few on rugby, I think a couple on netball and lots of just general accounting ones. So if you wanting to look into any things that we're talking about in a more general sense, feel free to go and have a look. Brilliant. Well, with that done, why don't we move into the finance conversation itself? So to give uh, everybody listening or watching a bit of context, earlier within the year, I think around uh, April, um, Rugby Australia dropped their annual report. And there was also the ongoing conversation about private equity. And uh, there was information coming out about with some more detail about the bid that Rugby Australia are putting out there to find private equity to bring some cash into the game. So with all of that, considering also the fact that we've got the 2025 Lions Tour, 2027 and 2029 World Cup for the men and women being in Australia, mm -hmm. and also the Brisbane Olympics in 30, 31, 32. I believe. Oh, 32, thank 30. you. 
for clarification. Um, there's a lot of money coming in. And so I guess the great question that's going to be the big part of our conversation is uh, where are things at now? What are they going to look like into the future? And what opportunities does this present in a broad sense for Rugby Australia? So we're going to touch on a few of those points tonight. But I'm going to start off with a really basic question. When the uh, financial, well, when the annual report came out from Rugby Australia for the 2022 year, they spoke about an $8.5 million surplus. And they were heralding that as a really beneficial and positive thing, considering I think they were $21 million in deficit the previous year. Uh, so why have we been able to turn things around? And is that such a great thing to be heralding at this point in time? Yeah, well, to begin with, it's obviously better than continuing to lose money um, or to, to show losses there. But within a lot of sporting organisations, and this isn't just rugby, this isn't just you know um, rugby in Australia, rugby in New Zealand, rugby to Welsh around the world. This is, for the most part, sporting organisations. They're not profit, I mean, is is useful, but it's not one of the key drivers that you really want to be looking at. And part of that is, the way in which um, you know expenses can be adjusted. Now, I'll talk to that, and that's not any sort of accounting sort of dodginess or anything going on. Um, but we'll get to kind of what's happening there. Um, more to the point, and probably the more relevant thing to be looking at is just what's happening with revenue, um, because that's that's the thing of which you know the money that's coming in. What can they then do with that? Um, being not for profit, but now, not being for-profit entities, they don't have shareholders to that extent where you know they're bringing money in to then provide sort of you know dividends to them or anything on that front. So money that comes in and profits that they make, they're looking to sort of reinvest it within the, within the business, within the game, to grow the game, to support it, and, and to and to move on. For rugby, one of the reasons why they did, of rugby Australia, I should say, one of the reasons why they did so much better um, was looking at the three main sort of revenue streams that that sports get um broadcast sponsorship and match day so if you look at what those account for just to give you a sense of it broadcast over the last six years for rugby australia has accounted for about 41 percent of their revenues um, okay. sponsorship accounts for about a quarter of their total revenues and match day for about 20 percent so all in all those three things make up a just massive chunk of the money that comes in um, the broadcast deal, um, as, as they came off from Fox, I understand that went down a fair bit. Like that was a bit of a haircut with, with COVID there was less content going out. Um, it was harder to, to get the money coming through. So in terms of broadcast in 2020, they're only bringing 25 million in 2021, it went up to 40 in 2022, it went up to 49. So just the fact there's more content and as that deal starts to sort of come through, um, that's been, you know, that increase of $9 million year on year has been important. Uh, sponsorship went up from 22 million to 29 million. So again, like a, a big, big increase there and a big one. And if you look over the last four years, so 2019 match day, we're sitting at 10 million. And match day for Rugby Australia is always going to be lower in World Cup years. There are less inbound yeah. tests. Yep. So there's just not the opportunity to be able to, to hold. Yeah, so um, if you've got the page up, if people are, people are watching, if you go back a page. Uh, I will. There we go. Yep, there we go. So that's the one. If you sort of scoot in on that a little bit. 
Um, yeah, you can see now this is well actually in here, this gives you the profit and loss. And unfortunately, and I can I can talk to it. Um, they actually don't separate out the revenue lines within on the actual statement itself. Um, but match day went from 10 million in 29, 12, 12 million in 2020. So you think in COVID, not a lot of people were able to get to, not a lot of matches were taking place. Not a lot of people were able to go to matches. 21, it's gone up to 20 million. And 2022, the year we just had, it's gone up to 37 million. So just the ability to actually have people come to the grounds. Um, mm. And that match day figure is, is about as high as it's ever been. Like that's, you know, sort of mid thirties, mid to high 30 millions for rugby. And again, rugby Australia, this isn't super rugby attendance. This is Wallabies test. That's pretty much as good as it's been um, for rugby uh, in the country over, over basically forever. Um, so why it's picked up is we've just been able to get more matches being played, more people to matches. Um, broadcasts are starting to come good. Um, so I think that's helped a lot. Yep. On on the expense side of things, I mean, obviously people were taking haircuts and, you know, there were a lot of people um, being stood down during that COVID period, you know, thankfully being supported by the government during that period of time, but it's still not the same. Um, they did slash some of the costs uh, to the super franchises. Um, so though the payments that were being made that were coming in and then going out and you can see super rugby and high performance um, that started to pick back up again. So 21, it was at 19.8, 22 is at 24. Um, but it used to be higher than that going back a few years when they only had the four franchises. So per franchise is actually still about a million dollars a year less per franchise. So by simply not paying those franchises a million dollars each sort of to get them back to where they were, that's $5 million already that their profit, their bottom line is better off. Yep. just because I'm not going back out. So jumping in then with a couple of basic questions, it, it seems mm. like that, um, that that positive reporting is basically in a way just coming from the low base that was enforced because of the COVID uh, downturn. Mm. So then looking previous to that, are we in a good financial position compared to where we were prior to the COVID changes? Ah, uh, not really. Um, and if okay. you go to the next, yeah, not really. If you go to the next page, which has got the balance sheet, um, and again, feel free to jump in if you've got questions, like, you know, if I sort of jump ahead. Um, mm -hmm. But what the balance sheet effectively shows is what a, what an organization, or in this case, Rugby Australia, what they control um, and effectively own, but control is actually the, the sort of proper terminology. So that's the total assets they have, you sort of see in the corner there, they've got about $69 million in assets. So that is all the assets that, that rugby control. Now, the thing which is a bit concerning, if you if you scroll down a little bit, total liabilities, this is the total amount that they currently owe, or at least at the end of the financial year. And current li and so total liabilities um, was $72.9 million dollars. What that means is, and you can see that come up in the negative net assets, is that they actually, as of 31st of December 20, uh, 2022, they owe more than they currently control. That's wow. okay. Not you know, that's not a great position to be in. Um, now you can see that that net asset figure has improved. So if you look at it compared to the previous year, and that's the one year we've got before, it was at sort of minus 11 ish 
million dollars. So it has improved year on year. And like, it was pretty bad for, for a period there. Um, also, yeah, minus 11. Um, it, to give you a, to give you a sense of context in 2017, net assets was positive 37 million. So we've okay. come down quite substantially. Also, Rugby Australia has has gone negative and negative quite quite substantially over that period of time. And within that, what's happened quite substantially, and they needed to do it to stay alive, is you can see financial liabilities in non-current sits at 30 million and in um, current sits at 10. So they're currently sitting on $40 million that they currently in financial liabilities, which they, you know, owe as loans. Part of which is the ten million that they owe World Rugby. Yep. So that actually leads me well into kind of my next question, which was going to be um, speaking more about some of the whether or not there's been any kind of fancy tricks to kind of um, present a positive narrative yeah. within this story. So there is the significant loans that have come in from World Rugby to basically help keep Rugby Australia afloat during COVID, completely understandable, um, that we've also received some of the Rugby World Cup prepayments. And like you mentioned before, there's been huge cutbacks on staffing and infrastructure. So combined with what you just said, despite the fact that there has been that $8 million surplus, things still are not looking particularly rosy financially for Rugby Australia. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, look, I mean, they'd obviously prefer to be in a better position. Um, I don't think anyone's sort of going to say otherwise on that. Mm -hmm. In relation to your question, there's a couple of things we look at um, that sort of help kind of guide and answer to that question. And the first is, and again, so we're external, like I'm external to the organization. I'm just looking at what's publicly available, including this report. Um, they have, like many, many companies, they have their accounts audited. Um, they were audited by KPMG. Um, maybe you would be having a different discussion if it was PwC, but I'll, I'll <laughs> yep. move that to the side. Um, they've got a, you know, reading through that, they've got a clean bill of health um, in relation to their audit opinion. So the auditor's gone through and looked at their systems, looked at what's what they presented. Um, they are comfortable with what is being presented in the financials. Now, there's a couple of small points on that. The other is there's what's called a going, you know, they can they can make comment around going concern. And there was no, at least from what I read, um, no comment made around that. So the auditor doesn't have a concern with Rugby Australia suddenly, you know, falling over. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, again, so there's there's good elements around how they're presenting this, inf this information. Um, there's always going to be narrative around management discussion around how things get put to the media around how, you know, it gets talked about and that's fine. That's just the way it's always going to, you know, that's the way it's always going to be, not just in rugby and just in everything in life. Yeah. Um, however, you know, everything, you know, you talk about the, 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 the world cup funding that's disclosed, that's recognized in there. So you can see it, you can find that information. They talk about, um, the facility that they have, the $40 million facility of which they've drawn down $25 million, 25 million already, 15 remains available, but unused that's disclosed, you know, a lot of the information, I mean, the information is provided, it's in there, if you want to go and, you know, anyone wants to go and read it. So to my mind, it doesn't look like any sort of anything sort of, you know, being pulled in, you know, any sort of Swifties being pulled in that front. I mean, the only gripe that I do have, and this is purely, this is more from a kind of researcher's point of view, because we've been mapping this stuff for their accounts over the last 40 years is 
unlike many companies, they change, they subtly change how they report certain things. So they'll aggregate information. So one thing might be, you know, for example, it might be broadcast and sponsorship might be separated in one year and then you go back a few years and it's combined. So you can't, sure. you can't see what was what um, they've, in the last couple of years, they've aggregated a little bit more. So it's actually harder in some senses to get some of what's going on. But um, yeah, there's nothing, it doesn't look like there's anything sort of dubious accounting that's going on at all. Well, that's good to know. And it seems to just paint the picture of, yes, there has been a recovery from what was a really, really challenging COVID period, but we're not in the clear yet. Um, yeah. Hence the semi-positive narrative, which actually moves us forward into, like we mentioned, this um this golden decade for Australian rugby moving forward. Yep. And we all, we all hear about how much money the Lions tours bring in and Rugby World Cup brings in. And I don't think anyone is going to be hiding away from the challenges that rugby union faces in a very packed sporting landscape within Australia. So a lot of people are pointing to the next 10 years as being crucial to the longevity of rugby union within Australia as a professional game. So... Mm -hmm. What can we actually expect moving forward financially from this period? And I know it's going to be hard to predict, say, 10 years into the future, but just general brush strokes. Should we expect, should we be expecting huge amounts of money incoming that are going to address those um, liabilities that we have? Are they going to be able to get covered by, say, the Lions Tour? That type of question. Yeah, yeah. No, no, they're all, you know, really important questions um, around the golden decade. Obviously, the, I think a lot is a lot is hinging on what this next 10 years looks like um, for Australian rugby. And I'd say not even necessarily the next 10 years. I mean, certainly the next sort of three or four. I mean, there has to be some real momentum being driven off, you know, what's coming up to, to really start to pick up the pace a little bit because, um, you know, you look at the competitors and you mentioned the pack sporting landscape here. I mean, AFL, they either have just touched or are going to touch very soon a billion dollars in annual revenue. Um, wow. Like that's, you're talking serious money um, when we're talking, you know, just getting over a hundred million. Um, NRL are doing much the same. I mean, they're not at the billion figure, but they're sort of six, 700 million. Like it's, there are behemoths in the room and unless things start to sort of pick up, it's going to be harder and harder to, um, to sort of combat that, especially less so with AFL, but more so, I suppose, with rugby league around that war for talent um, and, you know, what that does in terms of bidding sort of, sort of player, player prices up and the ability to pay for those. Um, but to get to the question of what this could do, so, you know, we don't, obviously we don't know what the future necessarily holds, but we can yeah. look back at what has happened uh, to give a sense of that. So we'll start with the Lions, given that the Lions is coming up in... Um, not very long. Actually, it's not very long now, is it? It's 2025. No, it's yep. Can't believe, I actually genuinely can't believe this year is nearly halfway through. It's It <laughs> boggles the mind at how quickly it goes. So the 2013 lines. Now, the way in which, the way in which things are set out in their accounts, you can't, it's not possible to go, this is just purely driven by lines. This is sort of other revenue or other costs. But what can't, what I did do is you look at what's happened, what would, the year before, the year the year after that, and sort of see what was the bump, both in terms of revenues and also increased sort of costs around match day and whatnot to make this happen. Um, all in all, what seemed to happen, and again, this is purely from an outsider's perspective in, in 2013, was that Rugby Australia had a bump of about 39 to $40 million. Okay. So again, that's, that's what, 10 years ago now. So whether or not 
you know, <laughs> inflation and whatnot. But, you know, so it's about 40-ish million dollars. Now, that seemed to be comprised mainly of increases in match day. So match day went up from about $35 million usually around that period to close to 70. So match day doubled over that period. Right. So there was a major bump there. Broadcast went up that particular period by about 13. So they had a, a reasonable increase in revenues. There was some additional servicing costs, which would, would relate to sponsorship and whatnot of about 1 million. And then match day went up by about eight. So, you know, they brought in, they brought in about an extra 48-ish million dollars, I would say. And they, yep. and it's cost them about an extra nine. And that's in 2013. So um, what would be a realistic, obviously kind of estimate, uh, estimate, not, not claiming yeah, that uh, this is the gospel truth. I well, a couple of things to that. Like one, yeah, any forecast is always going to be difficult. I'd say I, I'd be surprised if match day was that increase in match day was that much different. Because I mean, you look at what the the match day sort of revenues were in that period of time. It actually is not that different to what we saw last year. So I mean, if you're taking the the baseline around how sort of popular rugby was then to now, you know, doubling that, I'd that seems a reasonable kind of assumption. Um, the broadcast, the broadcast is probably the one where it's a bit of an asterisk over because I, yep. again, I'm not party to the deal. I don't know if they're going to be, if how that's, how that current deal with Stan is being set out, what the new deal looks like, whether there's additional deals being done with, you know, with broadcasters um, up in, up in the UK for access to that. So what that looks like, um, I mean, we're generally seeing broadcast deals improve in value. Um, so, I mean, they got, they seem to get an extra $13 million last year. Could have been north of that this, this time, oh, sorry, not last year, 2013. Could have been north of that in 2025. I mean, you'd hope so. I mean, if you were conservative, I mean, I'd say, oh, look, put in between 40 to 50, I'd, let's just pencil that in. Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Which is which is very exciting. And I mean, just from a basic thing, that's covering the liabilities that we spoke about earlier, um, and providing a little bit extra as well um, on top of any other growth that the game has during that time. And so then, looking forward with the uh, Rugby World Cup in What's store, up? do we have any figures of that? And obviously. It's even further in store. But the last time the Rugby World Cup came to Australia, um, what did that do for the game? Yep. No, no, good question. So, yeah, the figures, we do have some figures. And we, we've, so for Australia in 2003, the revenue, so again, these are 2003 figures. Um, I mean, they'd probably, given how inflation's going, they'd be far, far north of that now. But $221 million was brought in in additional revenue in 2003. Um the the hosting costs were 182 uh so there was a roundabout funnily enough about a 39 million dollar bump in 2003 um to give you more recent examples though um some of this is a bit just because of the nations involved so it's a bit patchwork in 2015 um the rfu brought in the equivalent in power the aussie equivalent was about 425 million um, wow. in revenue to the RFU in uh, where am I getting to then since then what becomes difficult is so 2019 um, 
haven't been able to, and I dare say I probably wouldn't be able to read it anyway, but haven't been able to get hold of the Japanese, the JRFU um, yep. financials. So I don't know what happened there. But World Rugby also has a place in this all. So just to give you a figure of what World Rugby brought in, in terms of 2015, 2019, it was in 2015, these are these are Aussie figures, um, about 644 million in revenue and in 2019, 710. Um, that's the World Rugby element to it. And they they also cop, they also cop a fair bit of the, the hosting costs as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, you know, there's growth. I mean, if you look at just, if we're taking it really, really simply, 2003 to 2015, it's gone from 220 to 420. I mean, do we does that double again? I'd say that'd be incredibly optimistic. Um, New Zealand didn't do so well when they hosted 2011. Um, they actually struggled a little bit. And so the ability for people to travel and the size of, you know, the fact that we're quite a, quite a distance away. Um, yeah. It's yeah, a few few more years out. I mean, you'd you'd probably be host, hoping to be more in that kind of fifty to seventy-five yep. million in terms of, of bump, but there's a broader element to I mean, there's a broader element to the benefit from it is just showcasing the game. Um yeah, the Lions will do that, twenty-seven will do that, twenty-nine will do that, thirty-two will do that. Um, and that broader piece is probably at least as valuable, if not more so. Um, to the game than just that that pure dollar side of things, but the dollars are useful as well. Well, that that provides a very detailed and insightful um, look into things previously, and obviously then hoping and projecting forward. Uh, one thing I haven't prepped you for this question, but it, it is fun to sometimes get the unfiltered view. So let's pretend that you're not involved in Sydney Rugby Union and um, that you, yeah, you still don't have a role at RA. Where would you love for the for some of that money to be spent to ensure the growth of the game? Where do you think from your financial background that there should be some uh, growth or investment using this incoming money <laughs> i mean it's not completely taking my siu hat off but uh, <laughs> i mean for me i mean there's you, you talk to you talk to various people and that whole does high performance drive community and sort of and you know just yep. if the wallabies perform, does that grow the base or if you grow the base then that grows the wallabies and i mean personally and and to me the base is the base is important and I think probably probably more important. Um, if you can, kids, boys and girls are the future of any sport. Like get them in, get them hooked, um, keep them keep them invested in in the game. Like that's that's the way you grow a sport. And and the problem we've seen with some of where rugby's at now is because of decisions that were made 15, 20 years ago, um, and kids just it's the visibility of the sport and, and, you know, and not all of this, I mean, tough decisions had to be made, but, you know, if kids don't know the game and know it's to be played, how, how is the game going to grow? Um, so I think if you can, if you can support the base and community um, in a way which makes sense and it's uh, <laughs> to quote the, uh, the, uh, uh, to quote someone previously, uh, just not pissing it up against the wall. Um, but if there's if there is a way to do that and effectively and support clubs and and get kids into the game, get you know boys into the game, girls into the game, you know 
get it's it's a game for all and i think that's i mean that's what got me into the game when i was playing and and it's still what keeps me involved in it because it is one of the few games and like i think as long as kids being active is and people being active is incredibly important and look whether it's whatever sport in a way shouldn't matter as long as you're doing something but i think the ethos of rugby which i think has been lost a little bit is that it is truly a game for all shapes and sizes um you know all backgrounds anyone just can get in and play and there's a position for you and i think we need to foster that again that would be my kind of two cents on it whether that happens i don't know but well, uh, I, I found it really interesting. Um, we had the Waratahs kind of development um, team come out to the school that I work at uh, last term. And I was chatting with a couple of the guys that were there running the program and uh, about three or four of the guys there were like 19, 20. They were yeah. very clearly kind of uni students or part of like the Waratahs Gen Blue team or something like that yeah. doing some work on the side. And there was the one development officer and I was chatting with him and he was talking about how he was basically one of two or one of three development officers covering almost all of Sydney. And I just thought to myself, that's an absolute joke that um, the, uh, the ability of our super teams to be getting out on a consistent basis into at least schools um, is so limited. So uh, I kind of agree. I think we need to have this focus on kind of the grassroots and building the game within uh, schools whilst also looking at what the top can be doing as well to drive that broader um, interest and yeah. promotion. But anyway, uh, I do just want to jump on now because we've been going for about half an hour now. So I think that we should move to the elephant in the room, which is private equity. So what I might start with is I'll just quickly show for anybody that wants to get a bit of a read up of what we're about to chat about. Um, there is a great article on the financial review titled Inside Project Aurora, Rugby Australia's bid to find itself a suitor. So if you just go to Google and type in um, Rugby Australia private equity article, then this is the first one that will pop up. And it provides a fair bit of detail for um, people like me about what um, Rugby Australia has been putting forward. This came out in April and from um, conversations that I've had and other things I've read, there's hopefully going to be a decision by September um, about the private equity deal is what I've been told. Whether or not that's true or not is something else entirely. So first off, for people that have little to no background in kind of investment within sport, what is private equity and why would Rugby Australia be looking to get private equity in, in the game? I mean, it's it's an additional line of, you know, they're looking for cash. I mean, ultimately, that's, you know, they have, they've got a debt facility and we spoke to that. Um, now, is it why they're, they're looking at, it's, yeah, it's providing additional investment into, into the game with often an ownership stake attached to that. And so New Zealand, partially why they're doing it this time, I think they've seen New Zealand or New Zealand rugby go off and do the same thing. Um, and, New, and how that's popped up on New Zealand's on New Zealand rugby's books is they've got a hundred million dollars additional debt now sitting on their books. I mean, we talked about RA being slightly, if you work out the numbers, is about one hundred and four percent of liabilities to assets. New Zealand's at about ninety three percent. So I mean, they're they're not they're not actually dissimilar in that sense. Um, what that deal in New Zealand does, and looking at reading through their accounts, is it's convert that 
that debt is convertible after three years or there's some other sort of sort of triggers in there as well. But let's just say it's, you know, if um, that private equity partner, partner wants to take an equity stake in the business in three years time, they're, they can do, they, they're able to do that. Um, yeah. So it's not going out and just borrowing money where you pay um, a fixed amount of interest. Um, there is, and what you've got sort of picking up here uh, if you scroll down a little bit, um, and again, this is in terms of Project Aurora, like, again, I've got no inside knowledge at all in relation to it. This is, this is, this is it. Although I did, based on this, I went off and just had to, had to crunch through some of the numbers just to, because there are a couple of things in there. Oh, that's interesting how they split that, which I'll get to in a sec. Um, that distribution of 20%, that distribution is based on, um, yeah, so what they get is a cut of the profitability of of it. So it's not just a flat rate of whatever it is. So um, I don't think rugby, given that they're now at a, you know over one hundred percent, over one hundred percent liabilities on assets, actually have the ability to really tap any more borrowing. Um, they can't. They're not accompanying. They're also not in a position to. You know, they're, they're not listed, so they can't go and issue new equity to new people to. You know, if you want to buy shares in them, like that's not possible. So this is another route uh, to be able to do that. And the, the why is one: they are getting pretty tight on cash and that ability to service the debt that they have. Um, and two, I suppose they've seen they've seen it just happen across the ditch. Um, and again, that's it's, purely from the yeah. outside looking. I mean, I look, I. I don't know. I mean, there's obviously going to be more nuance to that, um, but that would be, you know, in a you know, slightly simplistic kind of view of it. Um, and yep. there's the opportunity to do it. Um, Look, it, it's interesting because uh, private equity is something that um, for novices like me seems a little bit dodgy because you're selling off a portion of your thing in order to get money now but lose revenue in the future, um, essentially. Is that it? Yeah. And no, I mean, that's, but that happens in so many spheres of life. It's not the, the idea of it. And it, it was like, think about privatization in the governments, in the government yeah. space as well. When you, when you take a, a private, oh, not privately owned, when you take a government asset, whatever that happens to be, and you privatize it, that is exactly what you're doing. You're getting a lump sum now to lose out on the, those, that future income stream or whatever that entity, you know, Telstra or telecom you know, whatnot yep. was, um, as an example, that idea is if the pricing is done right now, that's it. There's a question about getting that right. But if the pricing is done right, then it, it could be really good or it could be really, and the conditions around it could be really good or it could be really bad. Um, yeah, okay. so, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to have someone pay you a billion dollars for a really small income stream that you're losing, that's great. Like that seems like sort of a, a, a pretty straightforward decision to make but if someone's going to only pay you 50 million dollars for you know a couple of million dollars in in revenue each or income each year then maybe not so much like it's it depends on where that that price point is and, and what's yep. been given up which again yep. i don't know um well, um, I guess a part of it, I'll, I'll touch on this before we get back into kind of the proposed mm -hmm. transaction structure, and then we kind of might start getting to the end of our chat. But there has been um, a fair bit of concern about um, equity going into, say, the premiership through CVC. Yeah. And we have Silver Lake in New Zealand. And one of the big concerns that has been 
um, touted in terms of the premiership funding is that only four or so years ago was when CVC bought into the premiership and the clubs received a pretty fun, pretty significant financial windfall. And yet since that time, and it's only in the last eight months or so, we've had Worcester Warriors, Bath, and now as of this last London week, Irish. London Irish go under. Now, the circumstances are slightly different, um, and each of the reasons why those clubs have gone under is different. So, as an example, um, there's a really good article by The Guardian talking about London Irish's demise, which I've just put up on the screen. Yeah. Um, but they speak specifically to the fact that their wealthy benefactor uh, basically just couldn't handle the losses anymore in a current economic climate and has pulled out. And so that is primarily... The reason why that team's gone down but going back to it i mean look if private equity is meant to be providing this injection of cash surely yeah. there must be some risk associated with it um uh, there just seems to be some unease at least within my yeah. mind and people that i've been chatting with about what this might look like uh giving away some of the autonomy of rugby australia moving forward yeah, look, it's, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, as you pointed out, there's been some some really bad scenes in relation to the premiership um, and a number of clubs going under. And, you know, that has, that, that uh, you know, financially and for the for the club, it's obviously incredibly harmful. For the competition, it's it's harmful. But it's also for all the, you know, coaches, staff, players, families that are involved in yeah. that. And, you know, yeah. a lot of people have, you know, there are a lot of, you know, expats and, and and international players that have have moved to to play at these clubs have signed, and it's that that's damaging to everyone. So I mean, you, it it's hard to see that happen and the impact that has on individuals. Um, I think there are some there are some differences now. Not knowing, so the CBC, the. And again, not knowing exactly what was what money because they're all private, so it's a little bit harder to sort of get eyes into things. But if you, as an example of this, um, so the club, the, the twelve, I think, the, the the Premiership clubs had, I think, they had a seventy four percent stake in the Premier, whatever the name of the like the actual company that ran the Premiership. So it wasn't the RFU involved in it. CVC had. Uh, sort of 25% stake. Now, I don't know how much funding went from, like went through that 300 odd million through to the, each of the clubs. But one of the problems, and the thing when I, I spoke to someone about this, um, uh, about this last year, was I just couldn't square how the clubs were pro- like could ever be profitable. And, and the reason I say that is if you, if you go back to the top where the three main income streams are for, well, sorry, not top of that, the top <laughs> of yep. um, broadcast sponsorship match day. Mm. Um, what are the big, big revenue, big expense items for, for clubs? I and mean, now we're not talking RA, we're talking like, you know, whether it be sort of Waratahs down here, um, whether it be NRL clubs, whether it be, you know, Premiership clubs is going to be player costs and then staff associated with that are going to be they're going to be big elements to that. They're not worried about game development. That's an RFU thing. Like they they will to some extent, but it's they're they're a professional club. Their attendance is their salary cap for players. Just to give you a sense of this, their salary cap for players is about the same uh, in the in the Premiership as it is for the NRL. So where it sort of sits. So they're paying they're, for the for the squad. They're going to be paying about the same. Um, in terms of match day, from what I could see of attendances, they're actually not dissimilar to most NRL clubs in terms of attendances. Um, 
in terms of sponsorship, I can't imagine there'd be that much different, but the broadcast, which is a big chunk of the pie, the NRL pours in sort of 500, $500 million a year in terms of broadcast. The, from what I could see from the premiership, you're talking, I think it was $110 million, 110 million pound three year deal. So you're talking about 30 million pounds, double, let's say double that to 60, sort of 50, $60 million divided. Like a lot of the cost structure will be the same to run a professional club. The match day and sponsorship, I'd imagine wouldn't be all that dissimilar, but broadcast is just way smaller. And if you, if you just shrink a major part of the part of the revenue revenue stream, you're still paying for players to get out on the pitch. I think you have to have wealthy benefactors. I don't think, I don't, again, I've never, I've not seen any of their annuals, but I can't see how any, any one of them would be turning a profit. Um, yeah. And that's why having a wealthy benefactor is crucial, which is why when they pull out, they go, well, that's, that makes it hard. Rugby, rugby Australia is not in that boat. Like it's, it's, it's been there. It's survived. It's going along. It can, it'll, might have to shrink operations, shrink what it does, but it it's able it sort of in a way it's able to do that. Um, it might have drastic ramifications for the game more generally if it shrinks too much, and then you there's no there's no one really sort of you know there's nothing really to sort of aim for at that top end. But um, I don't think what we saw with say Worcester mm. or London Irish is realistically on the cards here. Yeah. Yep. Well, why don't we quickly jump into um, the transaction structure and what that might look like. Um, and then I think we'll, yeah, get to the point of wrapping yep. up our conversation. So from what we have seen in the Project Aurora uh, documentation, that's at least publicly available, there is a supposed transaction, a proposed transaction structure with RA Co and Nuco, with um, RA Co basically covering player sal- salaries and RA costs, whereas Nuco will have cover all costs, including match day and sponsorship costings. Um, and the revenue streams will be for Nuco broadcast, match day sponsorship, licensing, royalties, etc. Whereas for RA Co, it will be things like anything that comes outside of Nuco, like World Cup, Olympics, and government and community funding. Um, so, can you talk us through why there are these two entities, and uh, yeah, basically explain what what these entities well, are trying to achieve? Um, yeah, look, it, it's separating it out. So, when they're they're working with private equity, like they'll take their kind of connection will be with not the whole of IRA, it would be with one of those entities. New Zealand have actually done much the same. They've actually set up a separate vehicle and that's what, that is where um, the private equity is connected to. Now, why they've chosen what they've chosen um, here, now just to, now again, remember those three things around where where the main revenue is coming from, broadcast match day sponsorship, where do they all pop into? They pop into new code. Yeah. Um, I just like I had to make some assumptions here, but I sort of had a bit of a play around with like what I could see, and and it's some ambiguity. And look, I don't, I this is just a back of the envelope type calculation. But in terms of revenues, so revenue for 2022 for RA was 129. Newco, as based on what I you know, so roughly could figure out, um, and some assumptions there on things where I couldn't figure out, I just split them 50 50. Of that 129, 119 of that would pop into Nuco. Only 10 mil, only 10 mil of revenue um, for 22 would go into the RA 
side of things. So just park that figure for a second. Um, but when it comes to the expenses, um, as far as I could figure out, um, like it's a little bit, it's, it's um, yeah, actually it still works out pretty well for, for Nuco. So Nuco cops, again, based on what I could, there's a lot more ambiguity here where, where things sit. Mm -hmm. uh, I could see about $38 million in expenses. So 119 of revenue, so the lion's share of the revenue and $38 million of costs, whereas RA Co would have $10 million in revenue and $77 million in costs. Um, so what they've done there is just park, they've separated out. So most of the costs of running, like the cost of running RA kind of fall in RA Co. Um, yep. What that means is, and this is a pro forma, and again, lots of caveats around it. So the profit for RA Co would be a loss of about 67 million. Yep. The profit for new Co would be about 80 odd. And if you take that distribution of 20%, that's $16 million. Mm. That's, and that's, I would hazard, they're trying to get as much as the revenues and the sort of commercials into that side of things um, yep. to make okay. it like, and yeah. So, I mean, it's a way of funding if they're going to get $250 million, you know, if they're paying, you know, they're, it's obviously the, 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 positive is in a way is like if things aren't so rosy in a particular year then that that will sort of ratchet down how much that distribution is um which is positive but you know it's it still looks like a fair chunk of money will be sort of going out to pay for that 200 250 million um yeah okay yeah okay so, so what does that mean moving forward then like what What's the impact of that moving forward does it mean yeah i don't even know how to unpack what you've just said effectively <laughs> Look, I mean, if if it means, well, I'll, I'll take it back a step. One of the things New Zealand did initially, so they got that two hundred, they two um, hundred odd million that that lump sum that they got. One, they upped investment in competitions. You know, so a lot of their 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 line items, game development competitions, the 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 spend on them went up massively. So game development went from 30 to 41 million competitions went from 81 to 137 million. Like um, the teams in black, which is obviously the high performance teams went from 57 to 78. They were just, they're just able to throw money at building that, you know, in many cases, building that base. Yeah. They also set up a strategic fund, yeah. short-term strategic fund, which they put 37 million into to then just roll out. And I think, as of the end of the financial year, 30 million had already gone out. And so that was two small clubs all around the place. That's a fair chunk of money that just goes straight in. And if it's used wisely and well, that's kind of coming back to, to your unprompted question. That's, that's the sort of thing which it can be used for. And, it, and if managed effectively, yes, there's a cost to it, but I mean, like everything does have a cost to it. So if it's, it could also be, and there's lots of if it's done well, it could be the thing alongside the 25 and the 27 that ignites or reignites the game in the country. And I really hope that's the case because it kind of needs something. Um, yes, there's risk there. Um, but I also don't necessarily see what the plan B is. Um, match day is kind of where it's going to be out broadcast. 
you know, hopefully it'll go north a little bit. Sponsorship, I think, you know, could go north a little bit, but not, you're not talking major turns of the dial there. Um, it, it just sort of seems to be this is the environment we're in right at the moment. And if this could be the best course of action, given what has happened. Well, I think that that's probably the point at which we we can wrap up our conversation because it does speak to the I guess I guess the opportunity that that lies ahead of um, Rugby Australia and uh, Hamish McLennan and now Phil War for the decisions that they're going to be making moving forward over the coming few years. And uh, for those of you who've listened to our conversation with Jilly Collins as well, the GM of Women's Rugby at Rugby mm. Australia. Um, that was a really great chat around what this period can mean for women's rugby too. And so there's a lot on the horizon and hopefully we will find out more about things like private equity, about the roadmap that Rugby Australia have for developing the game moving forward, um, both men's and women's. And hopefully that'll be coming out in the coming months. So um, David, thank you so much for your time. Just want one more time, if people are wanting to find you or, uh, devour a bit more of your content, where, sh where should they look? Yeah, just go onto YouTube and it's Dr. Dave Bond. So D-R-D-A-V-E-B-O-N-D. Brilliant, mate. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to have a chat. All right, Ando, no, really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. All the best, mate.